What I'd like to attempt to do this evening is convey some of the implications of why we, let's say, strongly suggest that you do the yogi job you've been given. And I hope that you begin to see, if not tonight, if it takes longer, that the implications go far beyond whatever your yogi job may be. Um, perhaps you've had some questions. Why, what's the big fuss, for goodness sakes? But it started some years ago um, when uh, I arrived to, uh, with Corrado Penso, some of you know, we arrived to teach and we came here earlier than usual, early afternoon, and we saw there were lots of people here signing up for yogi jobs. And so I couldn't figure out what, why, what all, the, what all the fuss was. It turns out that it had been a tradition that people would come hours in advance to try to get the softest yogi jobs. <laughs> the office used to be the library and the, the best job was to dust off the books. Uh, the worst job, <coughs> two of the worst jobs were washing the dishes and pots. There was no dishwashing machine then. And so it struck me as I wasn't used to that because I had taken for granted a certain approach to, um, to practice, which included giving tremendous value to the work that's needed to make a retreat center, a, mon a monastery, to make it work. So we uh, made it as it is today. Um, unless there's a medical reason, it's first come, first serve. And as Marilyn knows, who's managing the retreat, I phoned up to check to make sure that because a few times it slipped through the cracks because uh, no one's fault, just no one's insistent on it and people would show up, well, what would you like to do? Fine. Um, it has to do with a certain kind of learning and an attitude uh, which is central, I feel, to a way of creating a robust practice for lay people that is appropriate for us those of us who live in the world and who perhaps this is your one retreat of the year, perhaps a few of them, uh, you, you probably have to work hard to make time to sit at home and all kinds of things of that sort. And even if you are not in that situation, can come often and have a regular practice at home, most of our life is lived off the cushion, chair, bench, whatever. Um, <clears throat> first few years, we had a few very dramatic cases, one of which I guess is infamous now because it's been, I didn't know this, but it's been passed along. So different generations of staff know about it. And uh, in hearing people recreate it, it was accurate. On one of the retreats, uh, a, a, um <clears throat> an oral surgeon came to the retreat and the jobs were being assigned at random and he got cleaning the toilets, and he refused. Now, I didn't know this. I was sitting comfortably up stairs, and the staff politely told him that it's the policy of the retreat. And he said, no, 
I'm just not doing it. And they tried to get around it in many different ways, and he insisted. He said, I'm simply not doing it. So they sent him upstairs, and we had a chat, and I asked him. It was one of the few times that teaching actually worked. <laughs> uh, my teaching, anyway. And so I drew him out, and he was honest, direct. And he said, look, I didn't go to all those years of schooling to come here and wipe, wash clean toilets. He says, I'm an oral surgeon. And uh, I just find it demeaning to do that. And I said, well, I, don't want, I didn't want to justify it too much. I said, but that's our policy. So if you don't do it, you have to leave the retreat. He said, oh, come on, you're kidding, right? I said, no. And I wasn't kidding. I meant it. I said, no, it's a very important part of our practice because there's a certain attitude that we're trying to develop which can be of value well beyond the retreat. And when he pushed me to see if I was bluffing or not, and he said, I really wasn't, he said, okay, begrudgingly he did it. And here's why it is a success story and why it has remained here, uh, is that after about the third or fourth day, uh, and I did speak to him, uh, he, he ran into tremendous resistance. He felt it was humiliating, demeaning. He went through all kinds of things. Uh, and finally, of course, it had nothing much to do with being an oral surgeon or cleaning a toilet. You know, and he, you know, if, he, if you come to a place like this, we're unrelenting. We just keep bringing you back to yourself again and again. And so what he saw was uh, that it was a tremendous threat to what he had worked so hard to create, which is an image of himself. And a lot of it lifted. And by the end of the retreat, he was the joyful toilet bowl washer. <laughs> Happily scrub-a-dub-dubbing away. <laughs> Could have been a commercial on TV. And continues, continued to practice. Then we had another very powerful one. Some of you may have been here. I wish we had a, I, I, I'm a little lazy on this. I would like this. There was a woman here some years ago. And this is not violating privacy because she openly shared it in, the, in this hall. Uh, the first day, she was assigned cleaning the toilet. Apparently, for many people, that's a highly charged. <laughs> Maybe mommy wanted us. I don't know what the reason is. Um, <clears throat> and she came in, and she was hysterical in pain. And she said, look, I want to follow the rules of the retreat, but I have such incredible wounds from my childhood, having to do with my mother and cleaning the toilets and and she went, I don't have to burden you with the details. Let's just say it was no joke. Uh, and that pain was still with her. She was in her 50s. And uh, we both, we talked for a while, and she was really game. She said, but I want to do it. But just can, we, can I check in periodically? Uh, and she kept a record. Uh, and here's how some of the, I mean, I don't have the exact record, but it was something like this. A typical day, it was her time to wash the toilet. And she'd go in, and after five minutes, would just be so upset, so in such anguish, in such terror, that she left. And we made an agreement, OK, do as much as you can. Don't worry. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be an airport. I don't know, the airport to toilet's clean? <laughs> My 
my, I'm thinking of my father, that was, if we were on the road and we were going to stop for a restaurant, the first thing he would check was the toilet. If it wasn't clean, nope. I said, Dad, we're just hungry. He said, nope, the toilet's not clean. You can't trust anything that goes on here. <laughs> so I guess I have what, well, I have a story too, come to think of it. <laughs> so she then would go back later in the day and people, she, people start to realize what she was trying to do. She cleaned it painstakingly in, in installments in the, in the record that she kept. She'd go back to her room and just sob. And we, you know, she sometimes wouldn't come to the hall at all. And then she'd venture forth and maybe be able to do it for 15 minutes and then maybe just two minutes. And she was doing this and um, kept a, a, a record of it and shared it with us. You know how there's a go around at the end of her treat? Because uh, I knew it before that, because we had a long talk, and she finally was able to do it. And I'd never seen anyone work like that. So um, I hope you got a job you don't like. I really do. Here's my story. When I was in Japan, I was a layperson, and uh, I was, did a, a retreat at uh, not important where. and. Uh, I was the only lay person, and it was all, all monks. And I was decked out in a three-piece suit, which my teacher made me wear. He was Korean. And he sent me to his friend, Yanase Roshi, who was the teacher. And um, he at the time, I had just dropped out of the university. I had been a professor. And I came. I had the typical on-the-road Dharma bum clothes. And he made me, he had me fitted in Tokyo. <laughs> he said, you, you're a lay person. You've got to look the part. Says you're an ex-college professor. People will, will respect what you have to say. But why did you leave the university and go to Dharma and all that? So I was in this suit, surrounded by monks. And the day came where they assigned jobs. And what I'm about to say is a quote. I'm not trying to be. It's not HBO comedy where every other word has to be is an expletive. So when it got to me. Uh, my name then was Bionjo Gosanim. And he said, Bionjo Gosanim, clean the shithouse. And everyone just roared because I'm a layperson. What they didn't realize is that I had been in the infantry for two years. That was nothing <laughs> compared to what we did. What would have been torture is something where I had to be neat and tidy. And uh, the hardest thing in the military for me was inspections on Saturdays when we weren't on maneuvers, which would be. Uh, you'd have your, the bed had to be tight, and like in the movies, you've probably have seen it, they don't really bounce a quarter off it and all that, but, uh, and your locker had to be nice and neatly arranged, and your, your weapon had to be clean, and they would do this and that, and your belt had to shine, and uh, what else? Oh, it just went on and on. That was torture for me. <laughs> so uh, it, it has been used in different ways. Now, what I'd like to do tonight is something I, uh, to my, in my memory I've not done before. I'm going to be taking a teaching from the Zen tradition. It's well known there, perhaps not here, uh, but bringing uh, a Vipassana yogi's eyes to it. And it's a, a, a teaching that I was given many years ago. I found it very, very helpful. And uh, the teacher was a man named Dogen, one of the great Japanese Soto Zen masters. Soto Zen is in some ways, very similar to what we do, without the forms, Japanese form compared to Thai or Burmese or whatever, Sri Lankan form. 
Um, and this teaching is, uh, is Dogen's instructions to the cook. Dogen was a young monk. And I have the book here, and I have, fortunately, I ran out of paper clips, so otherwise there would have been more quotes, you would have all been snoring away. But I might or might not get to it, see if I can remember. I think I can remember, I just want to do it justice. Um, and Dogen was a young monk who was not satisfied with what he was learning in Japan, took a trip to China, and wanted to learn what they had, uh, the Zen in China. And he was on this ship, a Chinese ship, and um, there were Japanese mushrooms on it, being sold, I suppose, in China. And an old monk, uh, I think they said 68 years old, I'm not sure about the age, but at that point, I guess it was old. Uh, not all the life-saving devices we have. At any rate, the old monk came and wanted to buy some mushrooms and uh, spoke to the captain. And, and Dogen saw that this was uh, no ordinary monk. And he was the Tenzo, which is the cook. And in, in these large monasteries, it's an enormous responsibility and very arduous. You're coordinating buying food and, and preparing it, and it's just a lot to do. And uh, they don't give it to just anyone, at least in the good monasteries, the few that I knew of. Um, and so he had a, 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 a rather mature practice, and he was the Tenzo, the head cook. And so Dogen was eager to make his friendship, and he said, I'll we can get you a meal here and some tea. Let's uh, talk over Dharma together. And the old man said, no, I haven't got time for that. I've got to get back to my monastery. There's a celebration going on, and I have nothing really special to offer. And so I wanted to add some mushrooms, some Japanese mushrooms, to uh, the meal so that it will be add some delight for the monks in this special meal. He said, and Dogen was disappointed. He said, oh, come on, you don't really have to do that. He said, how, how long? It was hours for him to get back. And he said, can't you just sleep over? He said, no, no, this is my job. This is what I do. I'm the, I'm the head cook. I came for the mushroom. He said, but we can talk over Dharma. That's essentially so being the cook is, it's okay, but you know, what's the big deal when you have a chance to talk Dharma with me and you want to go back and cook, arrange the cooking? And the old monk said, refused, and there was no way that he could be convinced. And uh, later on, when they met, when Dogen went to his monastery, but he, I believe he said it all already there, he said, you young, in effect, you young whip, whippersnapper, you don't have it, when he was disrespectful about the monk's job as cook, was saying like, you know, what's all the fuss? Someone else can do it. And the old monk said, someone else is not me. And uh, Dogen just didn't get it. And the old monk said, you really don't have a good understanding of Dharma, do you? Bye, and he left. <laughs> um, what he was getting at is that Dogen had um, uh, created, as so many of us do, even inadvertently, a bifurcation, a split, between what we call Dharma and what we call daily life. I'm giving this talk, usually what is called the integration talk about going back to the world, is given at the end of the retreat. I like to start it on the first day because the message is there's no beginning, middle, and end. It's the same practice throughout. And it, you don't have to agree with me, but that's, you're stuck with, with the three of us because 
we agree with each other. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Dogen was fixated on koans and sitting and couldn't see so much of what is called daily life as being, and he said to him, he said, well, shouldn't you be studying the sutras or, or just uh, do, doing zazen or that sitting meditation? And that's when the old, uh, the old monk said, you really don't have a clue, do you? Uh, and what Dogen learned, to skip a lot of uh, stuff, is he learned that uh, dharma practice, meditative life, and life are the same thing, or one model of practice they're designed to be that. In other words, practice and living are not two separate things. Now, that's easier said than done. And I feel that for us as people who are in the world, uh, we have to make sure it doesn't become a cliche, because often it does. Because living in the world is hard. And th it, it, what has grown up out of that is a vocabulary, where at the end of retreats, people will talk about here and at other retreat centers that I've spent time at. Well, now we're going back to the real world. Um, what do you mean the real world? What is this, Disneyland? I mean, what have we been doing for all these days? There are challenges here, aren't there? Or is it just really nice and simple? <laughs> uh, so the point of view that we're trying to convey is that prior to all these forms, whatever, Dzogchen, the, the different schools of Zen, Burmese, Vipassana, you, you name all the different schools, bring in Hinduism, bring in anything you want. It's life. It's just life. And these forms have been inventions by human beings, brilliant ones attempting to help us live our life in such a way that there isn't so much unnecessary suffering and in the, perhaps even get free, perhaps even taste the depth of what is possible for a human being to experience. Uh, and that hinges on, as was hinted at the other, I think yesterday, the other day, it seems like we've been here because of the heat probably. <laughs> Maybe it was just this morning, I don't know. Uh, is on self-knowing. Uh, understanding ourselves, understand the Buddha, you have to understand your mind, mind in a big sense, not just thinking. And uh, the, the emphasis uh, here is that um, that can be learned any, uh, anywhere. Uh, th that is, wherever you go, there's life. And now, the particular forms that have been invented, for example, this form that we're in, it's form. Is it useful? Is it special? Absolutely. But it's also not special. It's just another way in which human beings come together and there's correct action here. Correct action is be quiet. You, you know, the, the culture, the mindfulness culture that has been developed here over many years, fitting into it. I'm assuming none of you are beginners. By the way, some of you are taking notes. I don't, I, you, I'm not, not a policeman. You're welcome to do it. It's a waste of time. There's nothing I'm saying that's original. Nothing. It, it's more, use this as an occasion to, to practice. Practice listening. You may hear the mind say, well, what's he going to get to the point for God? Well, actually, I have gotten to the point. <laughs> the point is that the practice is about living. Well, this is a wisdom path. Everything whether it's metta, the breath, everything that you hear around here is designed to be in the service of wising up. 
Uh, that is, the root problem in the Buddhist teaching is ignorance. And ignorance here doesn't mean how many books you've read, or how skillful you are with your intellect, or how many awards you've gotten for the brilliance of your conceptual mind, which of course is also a beautiful human capacity. Uh, ignorance here is ignorance of yourself. So that you could be illiterate and wise. I have met such. The best teacher I had in Korea was illiterate, really and truly. And you'd be astonished. It's, he thought the world was flat and stuck to it. Okay. He didn't fall off, in other words. <laughs> um, get it? Oh, good. <laughs> it just came out of here. I can't. It's heat delirium or something. Um, and you can be highly educated. You can know it, all the ins and outs of the Buddhist teaching and be, and be ignorant. Because if you look at it, the word ignore, one of its meanings is to ignore, uh, of ignorance is to ignore. It's in that family of, in language. And what we're doing here is we're reversing the process. If, if it's true that there's a huge amount of suffering, unnecessary suffering, is due to the fact that we've, due to ignorance, meaning we've ignored getting to know our mind, then what if we reverse that and start to pay attention? So can you see how valuable a yogi job can be? Now, in the Dogen Sutra, uh, in the, it's not a sutra, it's a teaching on instructions to the cook, there are lots of ideals that are set up. Okay, I a bit of time. There are lots of ideals set up uh, for how a cook really should be. And they're good ideals. Let me see if I can. That's why I don't like to do this, because then you have to. Okay, this is the, uh, what the what, this is just one of many descriptions of what a cook does at a Zen monastery. Um, the cook keeps careful watch over the area where the rice and soup are prepared. As I read this, think about what your yogi job is here. Don't make this having some, this uh, Dogen was alive in the 1200s. This is not some uh, uh, ancient history. It's about us. Or if it isn't, then I'm wasting my time up here. This is about our life. And you'll see it's beyond even a job. It's about the rest of our life, too. Keeps careful watch over the area. And he goes into details what he does. And here he says, when ordinarily preparing ingredients, do not, this is the instructions to the cook, that the cook, uh, do not regard them with ordinary eyes. Uh, What's the difference between, let's say, what makes being a cook at a Zen monastery or here um, a Dharma practice? What makes a difference than, than Julia Childs? You know, or all the chefs that are appearing now on TV who have all these diets and, uh, you know, all these shows. And, uh, or, you know, just a good cook, which is valuable. It's great. 
but what makes it a Dharma practice? Uh, what he, what he says, do not, in other words, don't look at what, the, what you have in front of you, the ingredients, the utensils, with ordinary eyes. Ordinary eyes means deluded. Or think of them with ordinary emotions, same thing. Lifting a single blade of grass builds a Buddha land. Entering a single mote of dust, is, of dust um, turns the great wheel of the Dharma. That is, in other words, even uh, a, a one uh, a, a leaf, a spinach leaf, like we had for lunch today, or, or lettuce, and just cleaning a little bit of dust off food uh, makes these extreme analogies to uh, a Buddha rupa, you know, something, uh, an extravagant uh, build construction, honoring the Buddha, and entering a single mode of dust turns the great wheel of the Dharma. In other words, is a Dharma teaching. Even when, for example, one makes a soup of the crudest greens, one should not give rise to a mind that loathes it or takes it lightly. And even one make, when one makes a soup of the finest cream, which was a delicacy in China then, one should not give rise to a mind that feels glad and rejoices in it. If one is at the outset free from preferences, how could one have any aversion? Even when confronted with poor ingredients, there's no negligence whatsoever. Even when faced with scanty ingredients, one exerts oneself. Do not change your mind in accordance with things. Whoever changes his mind in accordance with things, revises his words to suit the person he is speaking to, is not a person of the way. The way means someone on the path. So it's an attitudinal change that turns making a bowl of soup or a salad uh, into a Dharma practice. Um, and what, what he's getting at is the reason that the mind is ordinary is that we come to it with an attitude that it's just sort of put up with it, COVID. it's something that has to get done. Um, the mind is scattered, distracted, for example. Think about it, if you have a job that you're not all that interested in, but you're still doing it, you're doing your best, maybe vacuuming, maybe this, that, or the other. Um, and even if you love your job, doesn't your mind wander? Perhaps you're thinking about you're coping with it, you're putting up with it, you're trying to get done with it so you can do something that's more interesting to you. And from the outside looking in, the form, someone may look at you and let's say it's, it's with dishes and they're spotless at the end of it, but you're barely there for it. So what this is suggesting is when you bring the same mind, the way-seeking mind that you bring in the, in the meditation hall, when you bring it to no matter what your job is here, and Dogen does the same thing for administrators. He calls every job in this monastery, uh, the people who administer the monastery, not just cooks, the children of the Buddha. In other words, you understand the implications of what you're doing. Not only are you doing it for yourself, because if you practice with that attitude, you're uh, going deeper. And you're bound uh, particularly if it's in, uh, not agreeable, if the job that you've ch uh, been given is not agreeable, it pushes your buttons and it's teaching you what you don't like. And you see all of that if you're willing to learn from it, which this oral surgeon was, to his credit.
and which this other woman who has had, uh, had that tremendous phobia to cleaning a toilet. But there's nothing particularly special about it unless you bring that attitude to the activity. Now, of course, what I'm suggesting is to bring that activity to everything. But for right now, I'll settle for your yogi job because we're here and uh, it applies to relationship and so forth. And we'll get to that as the retreat unfolds. So it's what we bring, the attitude we bring can turn what seems to be useful, very useful and important to make life run smoothly, but what makes it a Dharma practice? For example, in, uh, in China and Japan, now especially in Japan, they have many such, uh, you could call them situations that have been concocted, devised to, as practice. For example, the way of flower arranging, arrangement, ikibana. Uh, the way of tea, that one is more well known. Uh, the way of the martial arts, kendo, the way of the sword. Um, so these are particular activities where uh, what's the big fuss? For example, take tea. I, that's one I learned about many years ago in, in Korea. Didn't fully understand its significance, but some years ago I learned, and I happen to love the uh, tea, and so I do it carefully. I even had a few lessons in tea. It's not really tea ceremony. It's not a performance when it's done correctly. It's rather uh, the way of tea. It's a form of, of training. Um, after all, what is it? You take some leaves, you heat up some water, you throw the leaves in the water, you let it steep for a few minutes, you take it out and you drink it, big deal. Oh, it tastes great. And you know, there are rich vocabularies from tea lovers. It has a tint of chestnut with a little bit of you know, vanilla, and, you know, it just goes on and on. It's just some leaves thrown into some hot water and you drink it. So what makes it into a Dharma practice? Well, some of the great tea masters, here's one, it's when uh, and they, often it's social. Uh, in the Japanese approach, which I had a little bit of exposure to, it's too ceremonial and ritualistic for me and too detailed. I'm from Brooklyn. What am I doing with tea ceremony? You know, just, uh, at any rate, uh, it's, everything is laid out in great detail. But what the tea masters, one of the great ones says is that when the tea, when it's really drinking tea, there's no one serving the tea and there's no one drinking it. That's when it's really tea ceremony. It means you're totally, fully, naturally, it's samadhi, it's tea samadhi. You're totally giving yourself over to the activity. It needn't be tea. It could be anything. The best example I know, uh, some years ago, I saw a Japanese, I don't forgotten what it's called in, Jap in the Japanese language, but a, a, um, an archery master. Uh, and there were about, I don't know, about a thousand of us in some stand somewhere in Colorado. And, you know, if you've seen this or even seen it in books, they have special gloves and uh, it's quite an apparatus and a special outfit and there's a target and a long wind-up, if you want to put it in baseball terms. Uh, and we were all sitting there, waiting. And he went on and on with all these different moves to finally get ready. And his, they're very long bows, and he was about pretty short. And he picked this long bow back, pulled it back, and we were all hanging breathlessly. And he just shot it up in the air. <laughs> See if you get this one. The message is, the target's everywhere. 
Get it? That's all I've been trying to say all night. So uh, we're trying to learn some lessons, some attitudinal shifts, so that we value our life in whatever form it takes. It's not in, in cooking. It's not in tea. It's not in a bow and arrow. It's ridiculous. It's in the quality of life that you bring to it. And so what we're trying to do is to encourage all of us, we're encouraging ourselves, because it's not easy to do, to uh, when it's time to sit here, of course, sit. And that's mainly what we do here, lots of it. But when we go home, we won't be doing that. It's not inferior to being here, or it needn't be. But it's also not superior. It's just another slice of life with different requirements. So if you're, uh, if you're here, what is correct action would not be correct action when you go to your job. It would be silly. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what, uh, what, I, what I'm getting at. And we'll try to deepen that a little bit as the retreat goes on. There's one more that very moving, and then I'll, I don't know if I'll call it quits, but almost. Ah, here we are. This is someone I had the good fortune to, sp to study with for just a brief time, which was invaluable. Her name was I Oayama Roshi. She was a Japanese nun. There's a little book out you can get. It's the only book in English of hers called Seeds of Zen. It's quite a lovely little book. Uh, so Ayama Roshi, uh, she, uh, here's what she says. Um, I found her to be an extraordinary teacher. She's a tea master as well as being a Zen master. She says, the beginning of what she was saying is joyful mind. That's one of the kinds of minds that are being encouraged in the monastery. Let's say if you're a cook magnanimous mind, generosity mind, nurturing mind. They'll say things like, uh, look at the bowls, uh, the, your utensils and bowls and the vegetables and fruits and grains that you have available as if they were as valuable as your eyes. Uh, other things that are said in this teaching is of Manjushri himself. Manjushri in the Mahayana tradition is the personification of wisdom. He's usually pictured with a sword. Uh, if Manjushri came into my kitchen and I was doing my cooking, I would take my broom and run him right out. And that's one of the highest, you know, this would be like kicking the Buddha out. Get out of here. Can't you see I'm vacuuming? Okay. So they're trying to, trying to make a point. Okay. But here's a very touching story that Aoyama told. So this is about joyful mind. Each and everything is wonderful, at least potentially. A company, this is her relating this story. A company president once told me the following story. We were having a problem, this is in Japan, with graffiti in one of our company washrooms. We're back there again. Someone was scribbling repeatedly in the toilet stalls, no matter how many times we put up warning signs and painted over the scribbling, the graffiti would appear again. One day, a different message was posted a signboard on which was written, in quotes, please don't make this toilet dirty with scribbling. This is my precious place of work, close quote. It was written by an old cleaning woman in a, in a faltering handwriting. Everyone was deeply moved by the notice, and from that day on, the scribbling ceased completely. The repeated warnings failed to stop the graffiti, 
but it was completely halted by one sign in shaky handwriting, cleaning a toilet is usually looked down on, and even the janitor often feels that it is a humiliating job. And yet this old woman declared with conviction that the toilets were her precious place of work and that her work was a valuable job. Everyone at the company admired the old woman's attitude, even the habitual offender doing the scribbling must have felt ashamed. She put her entire life energy into her job, working with nobility. Her attitude is nothing other than joyful mind. It was an example of that. Now, here's what, we're, what I feel we're adding to this. If you go through this, if you ever read it, a lot of it are ideals, what the ideal cook is, what the ideal, uh, and they lay out perfectly sensible sincerity and uh, caring and attention and so forth. But what is missing is you can't just get there. Where is it, Maine? You can't get there from here? Something like that. Uh, just reading, in other words, let me put it this way. If you read Dharma books, and this is not a slur, just my own exp experience, everything is neat and tidy, very hygienic. Real life is much messier and just spills over a good deal of the time. That doesn't mean Dharma writings and teachings are, have no value, but um, Life is powerful, and we're, we're human beings. We have our foibles, and so we, if you go into any spiritual scene, not just Vipassana and not just in Buddhism, it's filled up with ideals and are good ways to be, and so it fills up with idealistic people. Now, a wisdom path, first and foremost, has to do with self-knowing, coming to know yourself. That means... Uh, we've already started that. Can you look at the breath no matter what the quality of it is? And when we move to choiceless awareness, and don't be intimidated by that name, maybe we'll call it something else. Some of you have sent notes like, it's too, too advanced for me. I don't know, maybe it is. But uh, we didn't get, a, it's not a special esoteric teaching that I got from someone in a cave 20 years ago. It really isn't. Uh, it's learning how to be with life as it is in this moment because this is what our life is. So whatever we encounter, that's our life in that moment. So we've started rather modestly with the breathing. Can you learn that on cleaning a toilet? Can you learn that? Now, uh, in this case, it becomes a wisdom path in that we aren't the perfect people who it sounds like many of these people are supposed to be. How do they get there so that they view cooking that way or they or etc well here we're here to get to know ourselves and to get free of what we need to unlearn to make room for what needs to be learned that is uh, what is beneficial in our life and to let go of what is harmful when so often we've been doing it for years and years and we even know it and we can't stop okay so that's why I'm saying I hope you did get a job that you're not crazy about because that will push certain buttons, but if you're just coping with it, putting up with it, and getting it done so you can get, get on with your life, that's a piece of your life that's been neglected. That means the quality of your life in that moment has been divided. You're not intimate with life in those moments because part of you wants to be somewhere else or it's imagining a future of in a shower or taking a walk or, or with going back to your room with a fan or whatever it might be. Uh, at least it wasn't the toilet. Okay. So um, these are occasions that help mirror us. 
That is our relationship to whatever it is you're talking about. Clearly, people are the big one. We haven't gotten to that yet. We will. Okay, so whatever the situation here is, um, approach it with mindfulness and an openness, and particularly don't lose touch with your reactivity. For example, and then we'll finish for the evening. What is often emphasized, and for very good reason, is the positive contribution that the Sangha can make. In other words, all of us together can accomplish certain things that it's very hard for an individual to do. Let's say, if you just showed up and there was no one here and say, all right, look, it's going to be 90 to 100 degrees, there's no air conditioning, just go to the hall, shut up, sit, and we'll see you in seven days. I don't know how long we'd last. I don't know how long I'd last. But you come here, we have company. So, and uh, let's say, as Dogen was pointing out, the old cook was pointing out, really, when you, when you do your yogi job, it's not just that the quality of consciousness that you bring to cooking or cleaning a toilet or whatever it is improves the quality of your life, so it's immediately to your benefit, but that if everyone is, or is, trying to, is doing that, we create a culture, an, an atmosphere, where everyone is nourished by that, because we're living, in this case, a very good one, uh, a culture of mindfulness where we're all committed to paying attention. Okay, we know that we often are not paying attention. We know that we often do have angry thoughts or aversive. And the Sangha is mainly valuable, that's what's emphasized typically, because of its supportive aspect and its inspiring aspect, and that it's kept the teachings alive. So these are wonderful. But in Korea, they have a very wonderful uh, teaching on the Sangha, which I have found delightful and very, very helpful. Uh, and my teacher would put it this way. Uh, if you want to peel a whole, a whole uh, ba uh, basket of potatoes or ba a pot of potatoes, you can peel each one individually. It'll take you forever, let's say a huge pot. It says, or you can put them all together and just rub it, and they all rub up against each other and peel each other. So sometimes, the great, wonderful yogis who come here are so sincere, excuse my language, are a pain in the ass. Have you noticed that? Why, they, they're moving so fast, don't they get it? They're supposed to be slow. Why, are, why is it they have two socks that don't match? Why, you know, what a big portion, that's, not, that's for three people. <laughs> you know, so it isn't all roses. We're human beings, but the, what's changed is our attitude towards life as it is. And that's what will be, choiceless awareness is simply learning how to be with what shows up, turns up as your life. We've started with the breath. Can you be with the breath no matter how it is? And it's, even that's not necessarily so easy, but it's going to get enlarged, as most, many of you know. So that whatever your life is in a given moment, whatever you encounter, that's what your life is. It's a fact. It's what is. And ideals are what we set up of how we should be. And if a lot of your life is made up of ideals, there's, there's got to be a lot of suffering, because the gap between the fact of what is and the fantasy of what should be is going to be like Grand Canyon, at least some of the time. And you're endlessly going to somehow, however you are, is not going to be good enough. And it just goes on. It's called craving to become. Become, you know, become more generous, become more compassionate, become more insightful. You can, we can suffer over anything. So. Um, use our situation here 
It's about the yogi job, of course, but it's much more than that. It's trying to develop a new attitude that when, so that when we leave here, you'll see that there's no break, there's no split. You bring the same attitude to whatever awaits you, whatever your next situation is. And uh, more and more we're refining and developing a mind and an attitude to support that mind that values self-discovery, that values understanding, that, that really wants to unlearn what is not working, what is causing suffering. The Buddha said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. Okay, it doesn't go away by praying to the Buddha. Sorry. Try it. Didn't work for me. I didn't even try it. <laughs> I have to be honest, once in a while. There's no, he's not up there. I mean, there's, all right, I don't, don't want to get going. But anyway, this particular path, the wisdom path, is for adults. Because it's saying that your life is in your own hands. You're responsible for it. And our own mind, mind includes what people are calling heart these days. Heart is more appealing, isn't it? You know, so every other word is heart, heart, and that means you're a nice, kind person. I never use it, so I must be anti-love and hate metta and all the rest of it. <laughs> but I, it, it's chitta, which includes all-encompassing. Um, the art of living seems to, of necessity, mean that we have to learn how to live wisely, skillfully, in a changing world that's uncertain. And it's obvious now, but it's always been so. And we have a little piece of it here. It's safer. It's more protected. It's simpler. Use your time here to develop the skills and the attitude towards what happens. Like, so that if, you have, if something is brought up where you get really annoyed with someone internally, um, if you identify with it, then you know, already know how to do that. We all know how to get angry. You don't have to come here to learn how to do that. But what you do, can learn here is a new relationship. That's what's revolutionary in the Buddhist teaching, to establish a new relationship to the same old stuff that every human being is subject to. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, let's keep the observing mind alive while we walk. <clears throat> <clears throat>